Welcome to this, the fourth podcast, Talking Terminal. This is a special podcast with my friend Ken discussing what happens beyond the virus. Hi Ken, welcome and thanks for joining me on this beautifully sunny but somewhat isolated day. It's, it's a beautiful day, Jeremy, and that makes it all the stranger that we're talking about uh, almost apocalyptic circumstances. In, indeed, they are somewhat apocalyptic, aren't they? And uh, yet, I won't, it, I won't say that twice, by the way, because I'm not sure I can say it twice. Well, I, I only just managed to get the word out once, and that was just following you. So please keep using <laughs> words with more than two syllables, and I'll do them just the once. Um, and the other thing that's unusual is that we're sitting in completely different places. You yes. in South London, me in East London, and not travelling anymore, which is which is frightening, I think. So, yes. but what I'm we not, I'm not used to staying in one place for more than about ten minutes, really. So it's it's immediately disrupted my lifestyle. I I absolutely understand that actually. So we're going to talk a bit about the longer-term impacts of the epidemic. And we've talked a bit about this together, but we haven't recorded it. So this is the moment to talk yeah. somewhat about what the long-term future holds. Does that make sense? People are already talking about, uh, forgive me, BC, and um, in a new sense of um, before the virus. And I think the interesting question is whether the world after the virus is the same as it was before, or if in some subtle or other ways, it's actually very different to before. And are we on the cusp of a change which we'll you know, look back upon as being significant, or will we rush back to our old ways? So what do you think then? What what do you think on the basis of that question? Will things go back, snap back to the old ways, or are there going to be changes? I think the reason things will change is that some of the aspects of what people are experiencing and feeling now actually correspond with a wider change in the world. I, I found myself sitting oddly at the side of the M25 uh, I can't imagine you sitting oddly anywhere, but I get the message. Well, it it was pretty odd. In fact, I had my my, uh, bobble hat on at the time, so it was pretty pretty odd. Okay, I confirm that is strange. Yes, that was strange. But the uh, still stranger uh, uh, thought was that you get a different perspective on literally thousands of vehicles rushing past on a Friday afternoon. And it does make you think, well, is this a rational way of living on this earth? And I think there are wider uh, facets. Um, I think the world has gone too fast. And that the environment is being followed along the way. And so I think that the, the effect of the virus maybe to accelerate or to act as a catalyst for things which were in the air anyway about uh, valuing simpler things. I heard have you got some... <coughs> Ken, have you got... If your hypothesis is right, have you got some uh, tangible examples, just things that you think might 
revert back to simplicity or might revert back to a different way? Yes. Take, take the supermarket. But they, I think they are part of this way of life that people have got into. And they've abandoned. We've abandoned the older way of, of you know, buying your grocery, fruit and vegetables. And so on Sunday, I found myself in a farm shop. And I can't remember the last time I was in a farm shop. Nowhere near the M25, I trust. Not that far away. You, but you have made an but escape safe, from... Safe enough distance. Good, safe good. You made an escape from it. <laughs> Indeed. Um, but it was uh, interesting. Plenty of people there. But it was a uh, reminder that there are other ways of buying food than to go to our local uh, waitress. Well, when you were at Oxford a, a few decades back, did you shop weekly, daily? I, I, I only ask because uh, you make me think that when I was at Lancaster, I shopped every day or so for fresh food. Yes. That certainly weren't supermarkets in the way we understand them now. And there was a lovely indoor market, which yes. was open, I think, every day except Sunday. You know, I used to go to the market and buy what I needed to cook. I, I shopped every day uh, while I was at university. But unfortunately, I bought a Mars bar and a bag of chips. Are you suggesting that, A, the shopping pattern may change, the places yes. in which we shop may change? And, yes, I am. And that, that would be part of people valuing each other differently and valuing their, their local, with a sense of place, I think, Jeremy, in this, that I think may be revived. And again, my point would be that the virus is doubling up with an effect. Home working, I think, has been... If, if, if in most of our working lives, the concept of homeworking would have been ridiculous. But with technology, it's no longer ridiculous. So I think there's this odd combination of technology enabling people to be better connected with their home environment, combining now with the sense that, that uh, traveling anyway is more difficult and seems to be hardly worth the effort even before the virus. So I think there's there's something there about people valuing take a park. I must confess, I was in Crystal Palace Park on Saturday, never seen it busier. And people were appreciating the park in a way which they hadn't before. I think people will, uh, in the past, might have felt that there was little or no uh, attraction in their local commuter surroundings, actually discovering that they're living around the corner from a beautiful oasis full of potential. Certainly was in Victoria Park near where I live, and, and, and as a result of the number of people in the parks and by the coasts, I think that's half the reason why the government has now introduced the um, rules yeah. it has, because probably yeah. people went rather too far. Just back to the, the issues you raised, shopping, sense of local and place and homeworking. I was amused to reflect when you mentioned homeworking and how difficult uh, that would have been in our working lives, that quite often jobs do entail some jobs do seem to entail managing complex relationships with people and certainly the jobs we did seem to involve that and I think we may find we've got to discover new ways of managing those relationships remotely. I do recall yeah. once going back into 
um, meet a minister when I'd come in especially to see him when I was in the middle of leave and I wasn't dressed in the standard uh, prerequisite <laughs> suit and tie. I did have, you know, I was well dressed but didn't have a dark yeah. suit and tie on. And he said to me, he said, well, it's good good to see you he said but i'm i'm i'm, I'm assuming that um i've interrupted your holiday and i said that is precisely <laughs> what you've done but i've come in to see you minister nevertheless and we managed to smile about it but there was yeah. a sense and i you must have had much more of this than i uh, there was a sense in which we were at the beck and call of ministers and i remember we tried uh, over the years to conduct more things via video secure links conference calls etc and found that very challenging i suspect yeah. the virus has changed all that because if i read my newspapers uh, and understand them correctly quite a lot of the cabinet meetings are now taking place with yeah. ministers from the four nations dialing in and I think if you can launch some protocols around it and, and say, look, don't interrupt as I just did with you, if you can say, don't speak over people, etc., you can conduct things rather effectively, I suspect. Yeah, but the, the, I think the, you'll know that I will always say that people have to get together. So I would never advocate moving to only remote working. But I think the pressure... And the appetite would be to make to make the time together mean more, matter more, be be, be better organised, more purposeful. And I was reminded in this book, which I've got, organised originally, neuroscience for organisational change. I love it. The only thing I hate about it is that organisational is spelled with a Z. And I will take that up with Hilary Scarlett, who is the brilliant author of this. Is she American though? Uh, I'm not exactly sure that she is, but I think she's, she's clearly saying to... Well, it may just be that her computer has that... No. Check on it. No, no, no. Um, but the, it's a wonderful book. Wonderful book. I don't, I've already forgiven her for the, for the Z. But it makes one of the many brilliant points it makes is that how in an open plan office that people actually don't communicate with one another. And she explains in terms of neuroscience by talking about how people have an instinct to guard their privacy. If you put them in an open plan office, that's what they're going to do. So they're going to be head down looking at the screen. Let's see, uh, head down looking at the screen, but um, zoning other people out in an open plan office. And isn't that interesting? Well, I think it is. Well, I do, and we've, we've, we've had a lot of experience of that. I guess the challenge I'd just come back on is, and it's a, you know, that, that links to your interest in this, the developments in neurological science, which we must talk about. But for me, the question is A, why? And B, given that I think over time there is likely to be post virus. An encouragement for more homeworking. I think it will involve the move away from large central office buildings because it's been proven that you can run a business perhaps without yeah. all of that infrastructure. I'm not suggesting none of it. I still think, like you, people need to get together. But then the question is, so what does neuroscience tell us about how to engage people who are working entirely apart? But 
how do you does neuroscience does hillary tell us anything about how to work in glorious isolation but at the same time work successfully as a team member yeah, well, i think i think putting words into her mouth i think she would say don't because her book points to the fact that uh, our brains require a social element First point, we're all, our brains have hardly developed at all. But the main underlying point of that is that it's still the, the mainspring of everybody's brain is a sense of flight, of, um, of moving away from danger. And that, um, uh, but in combination with that, there's a point about us being uh, social. So it isn't. It isn't that we are like in some um, Neanderthal way. It's our brain uh, feeds off social contact. So I, I would be saying, um, let's not move to a world in which everything is done remotely. But we may be spending less time in group situations. And it may be that we could have another podcast in a week or two where we explored in a bit more depth some of the lessons that the neuroscientists with an inability to spell could tell us about if you would be willing to help with that. That would be simply marvellous. Well, let's do that. And the other topic that I would love to come back to at some point is the issues of place and travel. And maybe we could spend some time talking about that in the next week or so. Wonderful. I should try and avoid the hard shoulder of the M25 in the meantime. Very wise. In fact, it would be very strange if I was there now. (laughs) You shouldn't be, Ken. You shouldn't be. So, look, Ken, uh, I I think what I wanted to just... Bringing things to an end, we've planned some things for the future. We'll do some work together on those, and hopefully somebody will listen to the rambling podcast and meantime no, i've already got i've got people who want to hear it well it's now available you'll be delighted to know on apple TuneIn, and spotify so send the links to people you just got to search on apple for talking terminal and there it is meantime ken so kind of you to have spent the afternoon talking with me and have a lovely safe the new phrase i've noticed is stay safe and we'll speak again soon Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Ken.